Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a four-week teaching series called Generous Living. Together, we're learning to manage our money well so we can live a generous life. Thanks for listening. One author writes, her name was Osceola McCarty. And until 1995, few people even knew her name. She was a quiet 87-year-old woman from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, who lived alone most of her life and survived by washing and ironing clothes for people in the neighborhood for just a few dollars a day here and there. She dropped out of school in the sixth grade and would have died in hiddenness, except for what happened on July 26, 1995. On that day, she walked into her bank and asked the teller to give a portion of her hard-earned nest egg away to a local university. The check was drawn and a gift of $150,000 was made to the University of Southern Mississippi, and the rest is history. When word got out about this extraordinary story, a media frenzy ensued. Over time, she would receive 300 awards. She appeared on the front page of the New York Times and People magazine. She was invited to the White House to meet with the president and first lady, and Harvard University gave her an honorary doctorate. Why all the hoopla? Because it is so rare in this day and in our culture that anybody handles money the way Osceola handled hers. This 87-year-old grade school dropout was wise enough to do what some of the most sophisticated, intelligent, and gifted people in the world have not been able to do, and that is to tame the power of money. Somehow, she was able to work steadily, budget carefully, save consistently, invest wisely, and then to give generously. For her ability to do that, she became kind of a national hero, and I think she deserved it. Because if you think about it, she really did do something extraordinary. She did, in her private life, that which our federal government cannot seem to do with our resources, what many leading companies cannot do with theirs, and what a high percentage of the families across our land have not been able to do. And that is to show mastery over money. Today, we are continuing a series called Generous Living. And we're looking at what keeps us from being generous. Last week, we saw that it's the problem of debt in our country and in many of our lives. Today, we're going to talk about the fact that most Americans do not have a plan. And as a result, not having a plan can actually cause us to waste opportunities. If you're following along in the notes, without a financial plan, we'll waste opportunities to live generously. Without a financial plan, we'll waste opportunities to live generously. I don't mean that we'll never have moments of generosity. What I mean is we'll waste many opportunities when we could keep growing in the spirit of generosity. And so because most Americans don't have a plan, did you know that the average American, us, who live in the most wealthy country in the world, give on average, 1.7% of our income to charitable causes or ministry. Now, Christians are not much better. They give about 2.5% on average in the United States. That is an alarming number when you think about how much God has allowed us to know and prosper in this country. And what happens is, is without a plan, 
it just gets frittered away. We live by the seat of our pants. We a lot of times, we overestimate what is actually going on. And so we want to talk about how we can live generously, but also do it wisely, just like Osceola McCarty. Now, next week, Steve's going to talk to us about what keeps us from being generous is a scarcity mindset. And then the last week of the series, we're going to talk about having an eternal perspective rather than just a right now perspective so that we can become more generous. Now, again, we're going to look today not only at Osceola McCarty's story, but we're going to actually look in just a moment at a passage of scripture where there are some Christians in another country that can teach us a lesson about generosity. And then we're going to look at what, what would be a plan that we could think about, that we could adjust or, you know, tailor for what God wants us to do in order that each one of us, wherever we are on the financial map, whatever our actual situation is, that we could get better at this. And so here's what we've been looking at. Last week, again, Steve talked about these same things, but here's the series sentence we want to think about in these four weeks. Would you mind reading it with me? We want to manage money well so we can live a generous life. This is what God wants for us. When you're done with your life, how do you want to look back? Do you want to be known as a person who grew in generosity? Or do you want to die with lots of regrets? God wants to teach us in the direction. He wants to help us become generous-hearted people. As Steve said last week, that's what the early Christians were known for. Radical purity, radical generosity. So as we think about that, notice also that a few weeks ago in our vision, we talked about this as a church. So would you read this with me as well? to see people of every generation giving themselves fully to Jesus and his mission in the world. And so we are looking at one of our five core values during this series, and that is to be whole life stewards, people that learn how to share what God has given us and not just keep it for ourselves. Now, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 8. It's in the last fourth of your Bible. And if you're using a black Bible that's near, near you, hopefully in the seat rack, it's on page 939. And we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 8 today. And we're going to look at a group of people called the Macedonian churches or the Macedonian Christians. They're in Europe. And uh, this is when the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message and the good news of Jesus Christ had made its way in to cities like Philippi and Thessalonica and Galatia and other places like that. And so we're going to look at that, and then we're going to look at a plan. But before we do that, can I just uh, ask you, if you would, to pray with me that God might use this time to help each one of us know exactly what he wants us to know. God, <clears throat> I want to pray for each one of us in this room. Now, this subject uh, causes a lot of us to shrink back. It causes a lot of us to just throw up our hands and say, what's the use? And I just know, God, that there's a number of people here that you just want to touch in, with your grace, and, in, and including myself. And I, I just pray that as you pour out your grace, we'll know what you're saying to us, what you want us to know, and what you want us to do. Help us not to compare ourselves to other people. Help us just to listen to what you want us to know. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so if you're uh, following along, here's what I want you to see is that the generosity of the Macedonian churches, here's the, if they were to talk to us, 
what would they say? Now, here's the whole context of this passage I'm going to teach on. In the early church, there was mainly Christianity came out of the Jewish people. It happened in Jerusalem first. A lot of times the New Testament says to the Jew and then also to the Greek or the Gentile. A Gentile is anyone who's not, you remember this part? Jewish, okay? So what happened is, is that as the gospel spread, it wasn't just for former Jewish people becoming Christians. Now it was people that were Gentiles and people now that believed in Jesus. So what's going on in this letter is that Paul is writing to some Gentiles who have become Christians. And they've already made them aware that back in Jerusalem, there's a famine going on. Now, people that were former enemies, like the Jews and the Gentiles, now, through Jesus Christ, are being brought together in one family. And so Paul says there's an opportunity for you to help your Jewish brothers and sisters because the Messiah came out of the Jewish background and you can now turn around and bless them and be thankful. And it's also a way we can be bonded. So we see here is that they, they took him up on that and they said, we want to do something. We want to help them. So they're going through a time of shortage. Let's do what we can to help them and through this difficult time. Now, here's what happened. If they were to stand up here today and say, here's how God worked in our hearts so that we got involved, what would they say? And if you're following along, I think the first thing that they would say to us this morning is this, you don't have to be rich to be generous. You don't have to be rich to be generous. This is really important. Now, let me just read uh, verse one, and uh, I'll invite you to read verse two with me. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Would you mind reading verse two with me in that second gray box, please? In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Do you see that? Do you see that they, they were in time of, of extreme poverty themselves? But they said, well, we can do something. We can give. We can do something. Now, here's what I want to just say. A lot of times what happens is that we think that we have to have a lot of money to be generous. That's a lie. The truth is, is that some of the most generous people I know don't have that much of the world's goods, but they have a heart that wants to be generous. Jesus once gave an example of this in Luke 20, uh, in John, is it Luke 21? Is that what I say? Yeah, Luke 21. Here it is. While Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor widow has given more than all of the rest of them, for they have given a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she has. And who is more generous? See, what, if we get caught up in amounts of money. Lord doesn't care about amounts of money as much as he cares about percentages, proportion. And he's looking for saying, look, <clears throat> out of generosity of your heart, are you growing in a proportionate size or are you still thinking that a certain amount is a lot? Don't think like that because here's the key. If you're following along, if you look in your Bible there at verse 12, look at what it says. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Do you see that? If the willingness is there. That gift is fantastic if it comes from a heart of willingness. It doesn't matter about the size. It's about willingness. 
It's about proportion. Second thing I think that they would say to you is this. God's grace ignites a want-to and a get-to spirit. God's grace ignites a want-to and a get-to spirit. If you keep reading, you'll see in verse 3, it says, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Now notice the next phrase, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Uh, They say, look, Paul says, I want to tell you about the grace that broke out in these people's hearts. Now he's going to mention grace again, and he's going to actually say, hey, make sure you keep excelling in this grace of giving. Verse 7, look at verse 9. Verse 9 is where he says, this is where it all comes from. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. What he's saying is, is the reason why these people had such big hearts is because Jesus had changed their hearts. God, the word for grace there, it means generous. It means gift. And so they're saying, look, the only reason we're be able to be generous like this is because God was first generous to us. He gave his one and only son, even though we didn't deserve to have him die in our place. Jesus gladly gave himself fully to us. Now we want to give ourselves fully to him in gratitude. We're not trying to earn his love. We're not trying to prove that we're more righteous than someone. We're doing this because we know who we are apart from the grace of God. And we want to be people that pass on the same grace we've been given. So this get to, this want to spirit. Can I just say this? The most exciting thing for me in all my years as a pastor is when I see people doing something because they want to. This is what the world is not used to. They think that a lot of people do things because they have to. Well, it's the right thing to do. I should do it. I have to do it. And friends, there's times that's exactly right. But when you see people say, oh no, please let me be part of this. I want to. It's to get to for me in light of what Jesus has done for me. Oh my goodness. The whole world stands up and takes notice when they see that spirit. Now notice another thing. uh, God's grace helps you name reality form a plan, and take action. I think they would say this, God's grace doesn't just open our hearts. God's grace, it was God's grace that helped us finally have the courage to name reality, to form a plan, and face reality, and and, and take action. Now, here's what's interesting. Some of you say, well, I don't think they were able to give that much because they didn't have that much. Yeah, but, but they faced that reality. They formed a plan and said, we can do something. And then they took action. You know, I told you about Osceola McCarty. You can Google her name, by the way. And you can actually go to Wikipedia, which I've done all those things, and you'll find there's a lot of fascinating things. Here's a quote of what she, was, what she said during this time. I can't do everything. That's pretty honest, isn't it? But I can do something. And what I can do, I will do. I wish I could do more. Now there's a heart. There's a heart. And God was able to work through. By the way, those two pictures you saw on the screen, if you look closely, you know what she's holding in her hand? The Bible. And I'll come back to that. But she understood that this was an opportunity. And so she formed a plan and carried it out on September 26, 1995. And the world said, oh my goodness. Now, notice this. They also would say this. See yourself now as God's steward and not the owner. See yourself now 
as God's steward and not the owner. In other words, a lot of times we think that God exists to serve us, but actually, even though he's been generous towards us, now that we belong to Jesus, our whole mission in life is to serve him out of gratitude, out of a get-to. In other words, to be his stewards, his money managers. All 100% of every dollar that's ever come into our hands belongs to him. And when we understand that, and yet he entrusts it to us, not just to steward, but also even to enjoy under his godly rule, then we will begin to live differently. Look at King David. Look at this prayer he prayed when he gave generously to build the temple that his son would oversee. He said, yours is the mighty power and glory and victory and majesty, Lord. Everything in the heavens and earth is yours, O Lord, and this is your kingdom. We adore you as being in control of everything. Riches and honor come from you alone, and you are the ruler of all mankind. Your hand controls power and might, and it is at your discretion that men are made great and given strength. O our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be permitted to give anything to you? Everything we have has come from you and we only give you what is yours already. Now there's an understanding of stewardship. <clears throat> if you ask me in the last 15, 20 years, what's helped me most in my relationship with Jesus Christ, it's understanding that I'm his steward of everything, not just money, my body, my time, my gifts, my relationships, my work. And when you begin to understand that, it changes you. And so when you see the money as your money, then you will not have the same plan. But when you see the money as his, and you say, okay, now, Lord, show me how to steward your money, your way. Thank you for trusting me with this responsibility and privilege. Show me how to do it in such a way that I further your kingdom and your mission in the world. It changes everything. And the people in Macedonia had a picture of this bigger opportunity, and they saw it. Now, notice the last thing. I think they would say this. Give yourself first to the Lord and then to others. Give yourself first to the Lord and then to others. This whole idea has changed my life. Do you realize that the building we're sitting in here right now was based on 2 Corinthians 8.5. We called the whole initiative to try and sacrificially raise money to get out here called Yes, Lord. The whole idea was, God, what do you want me to do? And I'll do whatever you show me to do over and above, and we'll give that. And this church family pledged $6 million when we were 600 people on Sunday mornings over three or four years, and God Bless that. But the verse we used was verse 5. Would you mind reading that with me in that third gray box, please? They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. I'll just stop and say this real quick. If you give yourself first to people and then to the Lord, if people let you down, you'll be mad. But if you give yourself first to the Lord and then to people as he directs you, and God doesn't mean you have to always give to everything that somebody says is a need. But as he directs you, if you've given it to the Lord first and then those people are irresponsible for some reason, even though we're try, we, we try and be wise in how we distribute money, then we won't be bitter because we'll say, Lord, it was your money. I gave it first to you and that you hold them responsible. It's just so important. But when you give yourself to the Lord first 
It means that then he can direct you and guide you. And that's what they say. Now, let me just ask you if you would. In your bulletin, there was uh, an actual monthly spending, kind of a budget worksheet there inside. And I want to just ask you to do something with me. Part of living generously, as Steve said last week, is naming reality, forming a plan, and taking action. And I'm saying the same thing this week. So this sheet is a little dated. You'll notice some words like iPods and things like that. But here's what I want you to notice is when I sit down with couples to do premarital counseling, this is one of the things we ask every couple to do. Now, I never look at the information. That's not my business. It's the discipline of naming reality. Years ago, when I used to teach on this, I went to and met with a banker here in town, and I just said, what are you learning about people? He said, well, here's just one interesting fun fact. Most people that come into our bank do not know how much they make each month. Now, that's a problem with reality. He said, most people are guessing how much they make. They don't even know. So this gives you the discipline of writing down hard numbers. Now, again, if you decide to guess, then you'll continue not to really name reality as much as important. But if you want to become a good steward, you'll name reality. You'll face reality. Now, again, you'll notice another thing when it comes down to debt. Steve talked about this last week. When it says minimum monthly payment, we're not recommending that you just pay minimum monthly payments on credit cards. Uh, we're recommending don't ever just do that. Pay it off right away if you can. But if you are in debt, he talked about the snowball method, the accelerator method. And so you at least need to know what all of your minimums are. But you need to also know what the total amount of indebtedness is. There's a lot more things I could say. But you'll notice that there's things like insurance. There's things like gifts. There's things like eating out. And if there's anything I've learned over the years as a pastor, it's that most people do not know how much they spend on those things. Our culture's completely changed. Now eating out is no longer a privilege, it's considered a right. The problem is, is that, that a lot of money that people spend that way goes for that and they don't even realize it because they're not keeping track of that. There's nothing wrong with eating out if, you, if you've planned for it if you budgeted for it, but if you're just living by the seat of your pants, then you're not naming reality. And so what this does is it gives a chance for you, if you have the courage to do so and the character to do so, if you write that stuff down, then you can begin to get a hold on what your actual situation is and you can pray over it and you can begin to see. Let me just say this. I talked with another financial advisor this week and he said to me, there's just two things we've seen change people's lives. One is if people have a plan Almost every time they're able to carry it out. But if they don't have a plan, they're in trouble. Second thing is if they have a plan, the way they get better is by having a wise financial advisor who will at least ask them questions that will keep them on track. And so friends, these are the kinds of ways to name reality, form a plan and take action. But it begins in these ways. Now, what would be a plan? Some of you have been around our church so long, you know exactly what's coming next. But I want to make a couple comments about this. I want you to notice the subheading. I want you to notice the words, an adjustable starter plan. I want you to notice that because this is just, people say like, where did you get this? Look, there's three things that all financial counselors will tell you that are healthy. You need to give, save, and live within your means. Those are the three things that are clearly taught in the scriptures. But the thing is, is how? Like, how would you know? So a lot of people, they think amounts. 
They don't think percentages. They don't think proportion. And so where do you start? When uh, my parents were teaching me, they took a dollar and put 10 dimes out. And so they showed me how these percentages would look. By the way, if you read about Osceola McCarty, because she had a sixth grade education, it didn't mean that she was dumb. But one of the ways that helped her visually is that her bankers took 10 dimes and said, where do you want this money to go? And so she said, I want one to go to my church. I want three dimes to go to my three cousins. And I want the six dimes to go to the University of Southern Mississippi. Now she had a plan but she was able to see it in proportions and she was able to just keep taking the $10 she would make by washing and ironing clothes. She would just take those $10 and she would just keep squirreling it away and then live within her means. She adjusted her lifestyle. Was anybody else struck by that last week when Steve said that? She adjusted her lifestyle in order to live the plan. Now, here's what I want to just suggest. This is called the 10-10-80 plan. Uh, a few years ago, I said, you know, you may even want to call it the 10-15-75. However, it's an easy way to remember. But friends, here's the thing. Who's teaching people how to handle money these days? Schools aren't. The government isn't. Who's teaching it? Parents have stopped teaching this. But if you're a parent, do you realize you could actually use this plan to teach your kids? This is a really simple thing. And we taught our kids the 10-10-80 plan. We actually told them we wanted them to adjust certain numbers when it came to saving. Or if they wanted to give to God, they could adjust that number bigger if they wanted to. But we just said start with a plan. So here it is. Here's what the 10-10-80 plan looks like. Give the first 10% to the Lord and his work. If you're following along, give the first 10% to the Lord and his work. Some of you know that, again, there's verses in the Bible. Let me just walk through these quickly. Here's Leviticus 27.30. Here's what it says. A tithe of everything belongs to the Lord. What's tithe mean? Tithe means 10%. Every once in a while, I'll run into some people, they'll say, I tithe 7%. You can't 10%, 7%. I'm thankful that they're growing. I'm just saying is you just need to understand if you say I'm tithing and you say something different than 10%, then you just need to know the word means 10%. But a tithe of everything. And so God said, look, look at all that you have. And a tithe of that belongs to me. So in my notes, instead of give the first 10% to the Lord, I actually wrote the word return the first 10% to the Lord. It's his. And friends, notice that you do that first. Look at what Proverbs 3.9 says. Proverbs 3.9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. Now, here's what's interesting. Some translations translate it this way, with the first fruits. The first fruits were the best. And so God says, give those to me. Start with me. Here's what happens. Most people say, if I have anything left over, I'll give it to God. Or if I'm feeling generous. But he says, no, no, start with me. Acknowledge that I am the source of your supply. Honor me first. Trust me with all 100%, but honor me in that way, in a tangible way. Look at Malachi 3. Here's what it says. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Steve was saying to me this week that when he was in college and he read that, he was so struck by God saying, 
Test me in this. See, if my heart towards you, I'm not trying to take your money. I don't need your money. I want to do something where if you'll trust me first, see if I don't help provide. Trish and I regularly look at each other and say what Billy Graham used to say. You can't outgive God. We just have been blown away. Trish and I were in life group Monday night and uh, we were going around discussing things. And one of the guys in life group said that years ago when he and his wife were kind of inconsistent, uh, he was more than she was, inconsistent in their church giving, uh, church attendance. He said uh, he happened to be there one Sunday when the pastor, here was the summation of his message when he got done talking about Malachi 3. He said, try it. And he said, for some reason that day, he took that to heart. And he said, my wife and I started tithing that day and we've never looked back. And he's in his late 70s now. And he says, we cannot believe how God has proven himself again and again and again. Now look at this. Some people will say, you know, tithing is Old Testament. Friends, it's actually not. But here, let me just show you a verse in case you wonder if it's New Testament. Here's what Jesus said. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. What is he saying? Look, all God's trying to do is show you that this is still something that's important to him, but don't get all hung up with just going, I tithe. No, be the kind of person that says that's just a given. That's just a given. Randy Alcorn says the tithe is actually training wheels because God wants to teach us so much more. By the way, did you notice it's tithes and offerings? My pastor in Wheaton years ago taught me that there was actually three separate tithes and also offerings. And so if you were a really devout Jewish person, you gave about 23% of your income every year plus offerings. So is 10% sound better after I say that? The idea is this. Now, let me just answer a few questions. Some people go, do, where do I give my tithe? To the church or other ministries? My grandfather taught me that it says, bring the full tithe into my house. So again, I recommend that you give it to the church that you're a part of. And if this isn't a church that you can do that with, then maybe you need to find a church where you can do that with all integrity. We want to make sure that we're trustworthy. But if you say, you know what, actually, I'm going to give some of that to God's work here at the church, and I'm going to give some to other ministries. Look, work it out, but work it out in your own heart. What God's interested in is helping you grow. Some people, will, after they hear a message like this, if they've never done this before, they'll go, gross or net? I'll just go, start, start where your heart's ready to start. Grow in this. Some people go, should I do that if I'm in debt? Look, you got to decide, do you want the Lord to be over your finances. This is one of the ways. Second thing is give the first 10% to the Lord. Second, save the next 10% for future and emergencies. Save the next 10% for future and emergencies. Again, as I've taught on this before, sometimes maybe it might be 15% in light of some of the different things, depending on when you're starting. If you have an employer that will match 50 cents on the dollar, up to 6%, most financial advisors would say, give the max you can to that. And then if you have debt, take the other 4% and start paying off debt. And then you, as you do that, you begin to go after that. But however you decide to do it, most, again, Dave Ramsey would say, take, uh, make sure you have an emergency fund first so that then if you get hit, then your savings doesn't have to get hit. The idea is, are you moving in that direction? Every time you get paid, 
Are you remembering God first? Are you saving money or are you just letting it fritter away? I received letters over the years and one person said, we're doing okay on the first 10%, but we're doing terrible on the second 10%, so thanks for the reminder. This was really helpful for Trish and me. As I get closer and closer to retirement age, just being mindful of how important this is. Did you know the average American retires with $250 in savings? If you expect the government to take care of us, friends, we're in deep trouble. This is, this is carrying our own load, making sure we're responsible as much as possible. The third thing is, is to live within your means with the other 80%. To live within your means within the other 80%. If you've seen Proverbs 21, 20, look at this. This is a powerful verse. <clears throat> Here's what it says. The wise man saves for the future but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. So what happens is, is it's possible to get to the end of the month and not having gotten rid of any more debt, not having saved anything or honored God, and it's possible to have all those things happen. But what if you began to name reality, form a plan, and take action? These are the kinds of things that can begin to get you on a path, again, where God's grace is flowing all over your life. It's just a powerful thing. So as we think about this, um, did you know the average American spends 130% of their income? Now, just do the math of that. I didn't know there was 130% of 100%, but that's how it, we're overspending. And what's happening is it's putting us behind the eight ball. Now, friends, again, hear me. I'm, I'm not saying that that's always somebody's fault. Sometimes there's other people that are contributing to that. Marriage situations, there may be also some of the things we're learning about people in their 20s and 30s. It's a tougher kind of time in some ways, but how do we get the mastery over that rather than it mastering us? So if you look on the back side, I just want to give you an imagination for this. So if you play it all the way out, this is at 8% interest, again, which right now is probably a conservative figure if you're investing it over long haul. If your household income, in other words, if you're married, you have to combine your incomes. If you're single, whatever your household income is, is $30,000, and you stay on plan for 30 years with no increases to your income, no increases, which is unusual because a lot of people get at least some increase you'll be able to give $90,000 to God's work in the world and potentially save $372,590 for the future. If your household income is $60,000 and you stay on plan for 30 years, look at the numbers there. If your household income is $90,000, $120,000, $150,000, I know we've got people all over the map in this church. Whatever it is, don't compare yourself to the person next to you. Say, what's my situation and what could I do if I just honor God and form this kind of plan and stick with it and live it out, the possibilities are huge. And this is encouraging. And friends, it's this information I'm sharing with you today. I heard this myself and it helped me years ago. And it's just been helpful. So I'm praying. I've been praying like crazy that God's grace would be all over you that you would know his desire to help you and that he would stir in you some kind of courage, some kind of action, and some kind of gratitude that you would want to do this kind of thing. So if you turn your notes back over, here's what I want you to see, is that God gives us money to grow our character and heart size. God gives us money to grow our character and our heart size. A lot of people, Steve said this last week, our spiritual life is connected to our financial life. And so if you didn't ever catch that, it says in Luke 16, 10, whoever's faithful in little 
will be faithful in much. Whoever is unfaithful with a little will be unfaithful in, with much. And then Jesus says this next thing that's in the, second, in the first gray box. Would you read that with me? Luke 16, 11, out loud. If you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? In other words, it's a character thing. And that sometimes stings for us to hear that. But to have the guts to say, okay, God, grow my character. Don't just grow my image. Grow my character. Teach me those lessons that can only be learned by practicing these things and learning how to look at myself in the mirror with respect instead of disrespect. But also it's about heart size. I told you tithes and offerings. Here's one of the ways that the offerings were often given. Look at this verse in Leviticus 23, 22. They were an agrarian society, farmers, right? So here's what he says. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. Now, years ago, my dad was teaching me on this verse and he said, Jeff, how big is an edge? And then he said to me, an edge is as big as your heart. God knew that some people would make the edge an inch wide. And he knew that some people, out of gratitude and trust in him, would make the edge bigger for the poor and the foreigner. And here's what God wants to do. He wants to grow the size of our hearts so that it's a get-to a want to, and a pass it on spirit just as he's treated us. And if you're following along, notice this, that giving our tithes and offerings advances his mission. Giving our tithes and offerings advances his mission. Next, uh, next month, we're going to have an opportunity to give for clean water in other places in the world where people, when I was in Ethiopia, I saw children and women going down to the river every day carrying buckets up to the village, sometimes a half a mile away, every day, two or three times a day, and it was not even clean water. For us to be able to bless someone else, if it's in our heart to do so, is something we're going to try and do as a church. Now, let me say one caveat. We, we mention a lot of different ways to give at Christmas time. Please don't feel like you have to do every one. These are just opportunities. Don't feel like you're sub-Christian if you don't do every one. This is part of maturing too, to say, okay, God, what do you want me to do? And if you show me, I'll do it. But please don't feel like we're trying to say, if you're really a good Christian, you'll give to all those. That's not what we're saying. We're just trying to make sure you know of some opportunities, of some ways to be generous in our community and world. And so this last thing in this section is this, is having a plan can free us to share and bless others having a plan can free us to share and bless others. If you look at Acts 42 here on the screen, you'll see <clears throat> that this is what the early church understood. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. This is how the grace of God often works in people's hearts as they look at their possessions, they look at their money differently, and they have a heart to share. It doesn't mean that they can't enjoy it too, but that means that, God, what portion do you want me to share? How do you want me to be a bigger-hearted person? So I was reading a story this week, and I was just struck that even children can teach us about this. 
In the days when ice cream, an ice cream sundae cost much less, a 10-year-old boy entered a hotel coffee shop and sat at a table. A waitress put a glass of water in front of him. How much is an ice cream sundae, he asked. 50 cents, replied the waitress. The little boy pulled his hand out of his pocket and studied a number of coins in it. How much is a dish of plain ice cream, he inquired. Some people were now waiting for a table, and the waitress was a bit impatient. 35 cents, she said brusquely. The little boy counted the coins. I'll have the plain ice cream, he said. The waitress brought the ice cream, put the bill on the table, and walked away. The boy finished the ice cream, paid the cashier, and departed. And when the waitress came back, she began wiping down the table and then swallowed hard at what she saw. There, placed neatly beside the empty dish, were two nickels and five pennies, her tip. This boy adjusted his lifestyle and factored her in in such a way that it sent a message to her that you can be generous even with 15 cents. And friends, the Lord wants to teach us these lessons so much, and he can, and you can do this, and so can I if we'll trust him. And so here's the last line of the notes there. How can I keep getting better as I steward God's money? How can I keep getting better as I steward God's money? In my notes, what, here's what I wrote. What if I got 10% better every year at managing God's money? And I've just been trying to get better just a little bit each year. I've tried to make adjustments and just tried to keep getting better. What if you just kept getting a little better every year at this? That years from now, you look back and say, God taught me. He was so faithful. He wanted to keep increasing the size of my heart and not just my budget. So... If you put your notes away, here's how I want to close. Um, out in the lobby, we, because we so much want something for you more than we want something from you, we have a resource list there. There's a little section out in the lobby. And there's some books, some resources, but there's also this page. And it's got some websites and some budgeting, suggested budgeting apps, and even two or three people in our church that if you're serious about getting right with your finances so you can live generously, they'll help serve you. They'll sit down with you. They'll take time. And again, I know that a lot of times we feel embarrassment about that way we handle money or we feel pride and that keeps us from naming reality and forming a plan and taking action. But friends, can I just appeal to you? Don't let that stop you. Let this be the day where things turn Almost always when we do a series like this, I get an email or a letter or a note or people will come up and say to me, I'm so glad we're doing series like this because it was years ago. I can remember where I was sitting where God showed me I had never tithed and God wanted me to begin doing that. And as I did that, I began to see my heart change and I began to see my finances being handled differently. And we've watched people get out of debt if you watched Instagram this week, you saw we had a video of a young couple in our church that just was able to eliminate $120,000 worth of debt because over little by little, God helped them. And we've seen people be able to buy their first home. They never thought they'd be able to do that. We've seen people be able to give or go mission trips and do things in our community that they have so much joy about. This is what God wants for us. Can you imagine if each one of us in this room got 10% better at this, what could happen? The potential for the kingdom of God. 
is amazing. And I just want to say to you as a church family, I appreciate how generous you already are. We have been able to do so many things. Over the last 13 years since we've moved out here, we've been able to give away six or seven million dollars outside our walls because of your consistent, faithful giving. And I know many of you give to other ministries and other things far beyond our church. Way to go. Would you mind praying with me? And I want to invite the prayer team to come up while I'm praying so that they'd be ready to pray with any person here. If we can bless you by praying with you, we would love to do that. Now, Lord, what do you want us to know? And what do you want us to do? Thank you for Osceola McCarty. Thank you for the way you taught her how to manage money well so she could live generously. Help her not to be so rare, but teach us some of the same lessons you taught her. For Jesus' sake, for his mission, and for his glory. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.